You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this BJSM podcast. I'm Jill Cook, one of the deputy editors of the journal, and I have with me today Professor Bill Vicenzino and Dr Brooke Coombs from the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Welcome, Brooke and Bill, and congratulations, Brooke, on the recent successful examination of your PhD thesis. Bill has been an exemplar of physiotherapy research over many years, with interests spanning manual therapy, tendinopathy, motor control and pain. He's conducted many trials on lateral elbow pain, and he's been the main supervisor of Brooks for her PhD. It's worth noting that in this PhD, the publications have been published in BMJ, Lancet and JAMA, suggesting there's a lot of talent in both the supervisors and the students in the warmer climes. Welcome, Brooke and Bill, and congratulations, Brooke, on your recent successful examination of your PhD thesis. I'm going to start with some overall questions to Bill about the research he's conducted to date. Bill, I've always had trouble knowing what to call lateral elbow pain. Your research has shown that it's an incredibly complex condition. What do you think we should call it and why? Well, first, thanks for those kind words, Jill. That's a very good question. What should we call it? The... Lateral epicondylalgia is what we've come up with a few years ago, and basically that just means there's something wrong over the lateral epicondyle, um, which isn't that very descriptive. But I guess we're looking at a common clinical presentation in most instances, which is patients presenting with pain over the lateral epicondyle that may or may not spread into the forearm. It should not really involve pain in the hand and fingers, or up into the arm and neck. When we examine these people, they are tender over the lateral epicondyle, but most importantly, they have deficits in uh, gripping, particularly pain-free grip. None of these, and I can talk a bit about these as we go along, but none of these mechanistic pictures give us any better description than uh, the term lateral epicondylalgia or in most uh, uh, common sports terminology, it's called tennis elbow. So this is a hard question for you primarily because you're a researcher, but do you have any idea how much clinical treatment should vary depending on the presentation and the causes of lateral epicondylalgia? Well, I guess from a clinical perspective, if there is other evidence of on examination of neck involvement or upper limb tension or neural tissue involvement techniques to manage those those areas or those segments like the neck and the neural tissues would have to be something that needs to be considered um, if it's just a local isolated elbow condition it becomes a bit simpler in that um, well we rule out treating the neck and neural tension but it opens up another whole area of uncertainties with the range of physical treatments that are available and things like injections even wait and see approaches are recommended in, in medical practice and finally if it's a severe problem and nothing else has worked there's surgery so there's a whole range of treatments available for this condition I, th I think if we can in future move towards subcategorizing or characterizing the phenotype of tennis elbow better. We might move to a situation where specific treatments indicated, but currently it's very difficult to recommend from the evidence-based 
specific treatments for specific presentations? So these different clinical presentations make it a very tricky condition to research because how do you ensure that there's homogeneity in the group that you include in your studies? Yeah, that's, you're cutting to the chase. <laughs> the best we can do in clinical trials currently is to ensure that we rule out any significant involvement of the neck where participants have actually had to go take time off work or had to go and have some treatment for the neck. So we try to isolate it to a simple clinical presentation of local pain over the elbow forearm that interferes with grip and, and muscle contractions of the forearm muscles. Uh, you would understand that by restricting it to that group, uh, most clinicians listening to this would recognize that um, the studies are pretty much selective to a certain part of the tennis elbow population that presents to clinical practice. Um, but that is currently the best approach that we can use is uh, narrow it down to a certain clinical presentation. Um, in future, we are, we are conducting studies now where we're trying to look at the validity of using diagnostic imaging, um, but currently that you know, that's just in its nascent stages and, and requires further work. Thanks for all the fantastic work you've done to date, but I'd like to now ask Brooke if she could just summarise quite briefly the studies that she did in her PhD. So our first, firstly what we tried to, what we did was we summarised the medical literature and uh, this uh, paper was published in Lancet in 2010 and it uh, basically summarised or synthesised the evidence for injections including corticosteroid injections and other types of injections so we have things like um, um, botulinum toxin, prolotherapy, platelet-rich plasma and all of these injections are being used for tendinopathy. So we were basically looking at uh, which ones are effective and, uh, and safe for uh, different um, types of tendinopathy including tennis elbow. The, the main part of my PhD was a randomised controlled trial and this was undertaken in 165 people with tennis elbow in the one elbow and we randomised all of the individuals into one of four groups and they received either a corticosteroid injection alone, an injection, corticosteroid injection with a course of physiotherapy, a placebo injection or a placebo injection with a course of physiotherapy. So those four groups then were followed up over 12 months and we were interested in knowing those who was uh, who felt completely recovered or much improved versus those that weren't. And we also were interested in looking at recurrence rates over the one-year period. When you compared physiotherapy corticosteroid injection and then the combinations of uh, corticosteroid injection and physio and placebo injection and physio, what were your key findings in that study? So when we compared, uh, the main finding was that those people who had a corticosteroid injection were less likely to report being completely recovered or much improved one year after they had the injection. And this was significantly uh, worse than the placebo injection. Um, in addition to that, they had a much higher recurrence rate. So they, about 50% of people who had the steroid injection had a recurrence or a relapse over the, the year after that one injection. And that was worse than about 12% of the placebo injection. 
Um, the second um, most uh, important finding of our study was that adding physiotherapy, so an eight-week course of uh, physio comprising manipulation and progressive exercise, didn't actually um, uh, change this pattern. So no long-term differences on um, their uh, ratings of complete recovery or much improvement or in terms of their recurrence rates. So you said that the recurrence rate was much higher in the corticosteroid injection group compared to the placebo. What do you think is happening here and, and why? Sure. Well, the, um, the, the higher recurrence rates have been found before and uh, up to about 80% of uh, people having a steroid injection may have a recurrence. And it has been previously thought that people may have this uh, good relief in the short term and then go on to uh, have um, to either do too little or too much and that contributes to the recurrence. However, in our study, the group that did or did have physiotherapy had no difference in um, long-term outcomes to those that um, didn't have physiotherapy. And so that suggests that uh, it, it probably is more related to the actual drug itself, either the corticosteroid or the local anaesthetic uh, that it's injected with. And uh, there are some studies that have looked at animal studies and uh, they found that there are changes on both a cellular and a structural level in a tendon um, that occur after corticosteroid injection. So we don't know enough about what uh, goes on on that mechanistic um, sense, but uh, future studies should uh, be looking at this. My reading of your results suggests that physio seems important in early recovery, um, especially when there wasn't corticosteroid use, but using corticosteroid injection improves early recovery as well. What do you think, you know, as clinicians, we should advise people with lateral elbow pain if both physiotherapy or corticosteroid injection improve outcomes, especially early? So it is an important point that um, in the longer term, physiotherapy wasn't uh, any different to not having physiotherapy, but in the short term, it was advantageous and it was uh, of benefit only in the people who didn't have a corticosteroid injection. So we know from that that um, corticosteroid injections uh, are helpful in the short term, but worse in the long term, and so that's a, a way up for, for people um, wanting to go down that path. Um, physiotherapy, if it's, if it's on its own, not combined with the corticosteroid injection, is helpful in speeding up uh, the, the early recovery. And whilst it wasn't different in the long term, the, the group in our study that did have physiotherapy alone, or in combination with the placebo injection, they had 100% recovery and the lowest recurrence rate of about 5%. So very good outcomes uh, in that, that group. Uh, so basically we can be saying to, to patients that um, the condition itself of tennis elbow does in the majority of people improve over time, uh, but if they are wishing for a, uh, more, a quicker relief, then we'd be advising a course of physiotherapy. Uh, and for those wanting to have corticosteroid injection, that, that, that would not be the first line of, of um, intervention for tennis elbow. Now, either Bill or Brooke, I think, can answer this question because it's really, uh, I guess, the one we want to all know the answer to is, have you taken cortisone out of the game or is it, does it have any redeeming features or place in the treatment of tendinopathy? I think the key message to get out from 
this paper and the previous paper is that before a patient enters into having a cortisone injection, I think they should be informed that there's quite clear evidence that there's a quite a substantial risk of recurrence in the long term and that uh, there will be a prolonged recovery period versus a very quick recovery in the short term. So I don't think we've taken it out of the game. I think we've provided evidence which gives the medical practitioner some basis on which to inform the patient of potential benefits and downside of it. Um, I think it goes on from that that possibly it is not uh, the first choice of treatment uh, and that it should be reserved to after other treatments have been tried and, and physiotherapy uh, tends to speed up the recovery twice as, uh, twice as quickly as it would in a, if a wait-and-see approach was taken. So I don't think we've taken it out of the game, but I think we've put some strong caveats and um, provided some good evidence by which patients and their physicians can make informed choices. Thanks so much for your time. Um, I want to say congratulations to you both on a raft of great achievements and, and thanks for so supporting BJSM. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.